Welcome to The Cutting Floor on the River's Edge Church podcast, where each week we explore sermon topics that don't make it to the pulpit on Sunday. We hope that you will find this beneficial, and as always, encourage you to like and follow. Well, thank you for joining us for this very first episode of The Cutting Floor, brought to you by River's Edge Church. I'm Pastor Ross Grawl, um, pastor and church planter at River's Edge Church, and what we wanted to do was provide each week a synopsis of some of the things that we don't include into our sermon, and we thought the best thing to do with this would be to provide a possible avenue for those who are trying to learn how to create a sermon, how to put together a um, you know a teaching of some kind each week and recognize that there's a lot of things that just don't make it into the sermon and so what I'm hoping that this will be is just a time of education ed- edification and an opportunity for me to share some of the things that I found really interesting but don't necessarily go along with what I'll be preaching on Sunday so Um, I'm looking forward to, as we do each of these episodes, including um, certain people on here, one of them being Mark Woods, um, who in the future should be joining me, and we'll be exploring this together, and so hopefully you'll find this useful. So this week we're going to be looking at a particular passage, specifically um, it is Jesus and the Transfiguration. Now, um, there are several of these passages that show up um, in three of the Gospels. So the first of these Gospels would be Mark, and well, I guess technically first it would be Matthew 17, 1 through 13. Then it shows up again in Mark 9, 1 through 13, and then Luke 9, 28 through 36. Now, (laughs) there's going to be some things I add in here that are hopefully for your benefit, but you'll need to know in order to understand. So one of the things I just said, and in a way I may have misspoke, but in a way I didn't, Now, for those who don't know, Mark's gospel is actually most likely a written down copy or a, I guess, a restating of the gospel according to Peter, one of Jesus' primary disciples. So, Mark's gospel came first. We see that there's a lot of similarities between Mark's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, and Luke's Gospel. Luke's very transparent with his use of Mark's Gospel. He tells people he used multiple sources, multiple interviews, uh, eyewitness accounts, etc. Matthew doesn't specifically say this, but there are many times where the stories are identical with minor detail differences. So, this week I'm preaching specifically out of Mark. Um, There's some reasons for that, that let me lean there, one of them being primarily that I have a larger access to um, information regarding Mark's gospel. I just happen to have more resources in-house. But also there's some things that Luke does and that Matthew adds or subtracts that impact the gospel that Peter is portraying that Mark is writing. Also, I want to tie in one of the passages that is written by Peter later on in Second Peter uh, as part of what we're going to talk about this Sunday. And so that allows me to kind of connect the two. 
Um, so that's why I chose that. What's interesting though, is there are some kind of some differences in between the two and that's kind of what we're going to look at today. And I won't bring these up necessarily in the sermon. So they were exciting for me. Um, first, let's look at a couple of things that I think would be useful for those who are maybe dealing with, and I don't know a good word for it, but there's a culture of atheism right now that is looking to constantly challenge the Bible, which uh, we should not take that as an attack. We should look at it as exactly what it is. They're challenging God's word, and they, that is not a bad thing. We should challenge God's word. We should attempt to better understand and find the answers that are held deep within God's truth. Um, but a lot of times what happens is there is a, a general skepticism that starts the process, and we can't start from skepticism. We have to trust that God's Word is true, and then we need to figure out, all right, well, what are the possibilities, more importantly, what are the probabilities of this particular statement, and how does it hold up as I compare it to the overall lens of the Bible? So let's look at one of the primary things that comes up regularly when talking with atheists about this particular passage, and that would be the difference in time. So one of the first issues that we see is that Matthew and Mark both say that after six days, Jesus took the disciples up the mountain. Luke says about eight days. And there's actually some very interesting reasonings to this. One of them is that Luke loves the word about. Um, there's actually a really good resource for this. If you are interested, I want to point you to a podcast that I listen. It's also a YouTube channel. Um, but the name of the podcast is actually by a um, pastor in California named Mike Winger. Um, but he has a podcast called The Bible Thinker. And he actually talks about the transfiguration. So if you were to type in Bible thinker, transfiguration, it'll take you to his podcast. And he spends a lot of time talking about this in particular in much more detail than I will. But essentially what it is, is Luke loves the word about. I think part of it is his desire to be open and where he is specific, he's intentionally specific. And I feel like that's probably because he feels, perhaps he feels more comfortable with the amount of information and the amount of facts that he has. But he also just generally likes using this word about quite frequently. I believe it's pronounced Jose. Um, I might have pronounced that wrong, but it's used in the entirety of the New Testament something like nine times. It's used by Luke 27 times in Luke and Acts. So it's he likes that word a lot, and it's an unusual word that we don't see a lot. So that's one of the probabilities of the difference. Luke wasn't, maybe perhaps he wasn't as sure about the timing. Two, there's the reality that Luke is looking at and counting the day that it occurred and of both events and adding them to the total six days in between. That's a very common thing that would happen in that culture and in the writing of both Greek and Jewish scholars. Not all that much of a stretch. It's kind of the same argument about Jesus dying on the cross and rising three days. When you count the day he dies and the day he rises, that's three days. So that's why this is not something that's all that unusual. And it could be a reason or a probability for Luke to have adjusted the time for himself. 
The last one could be actually related to Luke's desire to point to Jesus as a greater Moses figure. Luke does this very specifically. And he's really would be pointing that image of the transfiguration directly at the Feast of the Booths, which goes back to a whole Jewish tradition um, where they would build little booths um, as part of a celebration and a remembrance of their time in the wilderness uh, and their time of exodus. And so, again, those things are all kind of interlinked together. Uh, this isn't contradictory. Uh, again, Luke says it in his statement about eight days. Well, about eight days could also be six days. Um, and again, these are things that people will get hung up on. But the impact is not as dramatic as it can sound. The reality is, is Jesus was transfigured into a glorified body. And so we're missing the trees for the forest if we're only focused on the six-day comment. Another part of what comes along here, and I'll spend more time on this probably in our sermon, but it is important as an apologetic standpoint, is prior to this transfiguration, there is the idea of, or there's a statement made by Christ who said that there will be some who do not taste death before seeing the kingdom of God or the glory of the kingdom of God. Um, and it's interesting because that, that statement changes specifically in Luke. Um, and it's even interesting that <laughs> Luke may have intentionally changed this passage because of some cultural issues that were going around at the time. Um, so, <clears throat> I'll read you that passage real quick so you can hear it in Luke's words first. Um, oh, there it is. And it's Luke's in Luke 9, 27, he says, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And if you go to Mark's original version, you will, <laughs> and Matthew's, you'll see the same thing but the wording changes slightly and I think we'll just stop at Matthews for the benefit of today's uh, podcast so Matthew points to and it's 16 verse 28 it says truly I tell you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom um, and then Mark will say something similar but again, I think you'll see that Luke edits a little bit. So Mark, which actually starts with this statement in 9, says, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste the death until they see the kingdom of God coming in power. And so there's actually some, a thought process there that as Luke was using these resources, he was hesitant about adding the power part. I don't know this. This is not really stated by Luke. So this again, this is some definitely some conjecture. This is us adding, which you have to be careful with. Um, we don't know the spirit um, of God's process here, uh, nor do we know what Luke was thinking as he did and didn't add this. But we do know that for some, there's been an argument about what does this mean. Um, uh, you know, there are some, there are a lot of theories. One of the theories is that this passage directly points to the transfiguration. That is the most commonly accepted. Uh, the transfiguration would include some of the people that were there, the three disciples that go with Jesus. They would see Jesus's power, the kingdom of God, essentially, and Jesus being glorified, um, and it would happen before they died. So it would, it would cover all three of those major issues. Um, there are others who believe that this particular section 
points to the um, the falling of the temple in 72 AD. Um, again, though, that most of the disciples at that point were dead. Um, so, and we're not sure if any were actually present in Jerusalem. So, there's an issue there. Um, and then uh, many others believe that um, <laughs> there's all kinds of theories. Some believe that the second coming already happened um, and that, you know, this was evidence of that. Other people believe that because those disciples died, this actually proves that Jesus was a prophet who failed. Uh, but again, I think it's really clear the way that all three Gospels write this down. All three have the timing of the events immediately after the statement that this is Jesus referring to the transfiguration. And so I think that really, it's too evident as far as literary placement and structure that it would be a very, very large leap of faith to consider any of the other options. Um, it certainly does not seem um, that it, in my opinion, and I think based on the reading that it would be anything else. And scholars generally agree on that. Uh, this isn't something that's you know, generally debated among scholars. Uh, a couple other things there's actually um, that I thought were interesting. One, the the priority of who's present. I know this will sound crazy, but in Luke's gospel, Moses is mentioned first. Mark and Matthew mention Elijah first. Why is this? Well, both of them are actually pointing to the same thing. And the event seems to be highlighting two very important factors. One, Jesus is the greater prophet. He's He is greater than Elijah or any other pro prophet. Two, Jesus is the greater Moses. And he is not only bringing the law, but he is greater than the lawgiver himself. Um, and so both of them are mentioning that. Luke is certainly using his gospel to highlight Jesus as a greater Moses, um, or as the last Moses, as some scholars put it. So there's definitely some indications of that going on with the placement of Moses being first. Um, and again, if you think about what we've already tied into that with the you know, about eight days and the and the understanding and the the leaning toward the the similarities between the feast of booths, you kind of can begin grasping that that concept. Uh, but both of them are still pointing at that exact same thing. The presence of Moses and Elijah is very interesting because one, they actually began a discourse with each other. They actually began talking with Jesus, and you know what would these great men be talking about? Were they we find that out uh, in Luke. It talks that they are talking about Jesus' departure. And what's incredible is, you know, is that Jesus is telling them about what's about to happen. And I think this is probably something that has more meaning, perhaps, to the Jewish tradition and understanding of how Jewish tradition looked at the Messiah. Most of the of the Jewish tradition of the Messiah was focused on. A anointed person of God and the anointed son of man, if you will, coming and vanquishing all of their enemies. And we know this is a thought process that's prevalent amongst even the disciples. Think about Peter. Peter gets worked up when Jesus talks about going to the cross, about having to die, about having to suffer. Uh, Peter cuts off the, the ear of a Roman soldier like he was embedded in that culture and under had an understanding of Jesus, the Messiah, coming to vanquish. Um, there was a almost, 
It was as if they believed that the Messiah would come in glory and suffer at the same time. And they were struggling with wrapping their head around the fact that Jesus would come and suffer first and then come again in his glory. Um, but that's not what Jesus was teaching. Over and over again, he said, the Son of Man must suffer. I must go to the cross. I must die and, and rise again. Um, if Jesus just came once, then the only thing we would receive is judgment. And we do not want judgment. We do not want justice being served before Jesus. Because then our only, there is no escape from our consequences. Our only escape would be Christ. So Jesus coming first as a, as a suffering servant, um, as a willing sacrifice, is a priority. That is what the Gospels are pointing to in this particular section of the Transfiguration. But it also highlights um, the eventual parousia, right? Which is a, I love this, is a fancy word for the second coming, which I did not know before seminary. But <laughs> Jesus' second coming, he will be fully glorified. And we get a peek of that. Um, Second Peter talks about how that is our hope, that the transfiguration gives us the hope of the eventual second coming, the parousia of Jesus. And I think that's where our hope lies. Like there will be a day where Jesus comes and evil is, is defeated, death is overcome, all the pain and all the hurt and all the all the, the, the brokenness in this world will be redeemed once more. Those are the things that we look forward to. That's the hope that Christianity has. And the fact that Christ comes and suffers sets him apart from any of the other you know, um, beliefs, right? All the other beliefs require the, uh, the believers to suffer on their own accord, whereas Christianity required God to suffer for the accords of his believers, um, so it's it's interesting to see how that all ties together. There are plenty of word study opportunities within this. Um, I didn't go into many of them this week just because of time. Um, I had to forgo of, of quite a few um, that would have taken me quite down some pretty deep roads. But I do think that, you know, overall, we talked about some of the kind of primary topics we wouldn't normally talk about in a sermon. And hopefully you find this useful. Uh, each week I'm looking to expand and, and grow this ministry and uh, like I said, I'll always try to point out some resources that would be very useful to you. Um, one of the resources that I do recommend that I personally use quite a bit is the Christ-Centered Exposition Books. So these are written and edited by um, several people um, of notoriety amongst uh, seminary and academics. So Francis Chan, Tony Morita, uh, Danny Aiken, uh, David Platt, to name a few. Um, but I use their resources quite a bit. They're very helpful. Um, another thing I use is I use the Logos um, program, which you can download for free. It does have some resources on there. You can expand it from there. But there's also other ones like the Blue Letter Bible, um, blueletterbible.com. You go there. They've got a lot of free resources. Um, but also take advantage of some of these guys like Mike Winger, um, who are doing this work, who've studied this in much more detail than I have. Uh, I often go use them as resources for specific topics. And so next week we'll be diving into um, uh, Jesus and the seven signs. So we'll be actually going through the book of John. John, uh, John's gospel actually lists out seven signs of Jesus. And we're just going to be talking about the prophetic 
um, fulfillment that Jesus had going into Easter. So we'll we'll do the seven signs, and then we'll begin dipping our toe into Easter uh, and the death and resurrection of Christ. So I hope you guys found this beneficial. I pray that you will continue to seek out answers in your Bible. Don't run away from your questions, but lean into them and find good godly men around you, good godly women around you to encourage you and uh, to walk alongside you. So thank you again. And uh, if you like this and you want to continue to support us, we would greatly appreciate you um, sharing this amongst your friends and allowing us to reach other people with it. So have a blessed day. Thank you for joining us today on the River's Edge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, check us out on our webpage at www.theriversedge.church.